Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles once again to the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, where we are going to be looking together at verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 4, 1 through 20, and you can locate that passage on page 983 in your pew Bibles. And over the next few weeks, we are going to be looking together very specifically at the teaching ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ here in Mark's Gospel account during what is commonly known and referred to as the Galilean phase of Jesus' ministry. Mark began covering it back in verse 7 of the third chapter and it will continue all the way through verse 13 of chapter 6. And I've said many times what Mark is doing here, right? We've talked about it since we began this. Mark is getting before us the biblical Jesus. That is his mission. And as I've mentioned to you before, what Mark has been describing to us so far in this account seems to be, at least in a sense, somewhat full of irony. And perhaps you've already caught it. Think about it for a moment. The long expected, long prophesied, long anticipated Messiah has come. And those whom we would expect to be the most elated over what is transpiring here in Capernaum are simply not responding at all like we would expect them to. The religious leaders certainly have not embraced Jesus Christ. The Pharisees, though they had even been eyewitnesses to several of these miracles and to the manifest display of Jesus' power and authority as he taught the people, as he healed the sick and the infirm, as he cast out demons, have become so enraged over his deity claims that they have actually joined force with their sworn enemies, the Herodians, to begin to together begin to plot the death of Jesus Christ, the murder of Jesus Christ. He was a threat to their positions of authority, and as such, he simply needed to go away. Then, of course, there are the scribes, the Resident experts on the law of God, and they have come down, we are told, from Jerusalem to check this this scene out. And they, too, are not at all filled with joy or a sense of peace at what they are so privileged to see. They, too, witness the power of Jesus Christ manifested before their eyes, and they then foolishly attribute the power and the influence of Jesus to the devil himself. They say it's by Satan that he casts out these demons. And it doesn't end there. We talked about it last week. Even the family of Jesus. They too come and they decide that Jesus has very clearly lost his grip on reality. They think he's out of his mind. And so they look for an opportunity to forcibly seize him and remove him from this precarious situation that he's in the middle of. And it still doesn't end. 
Beloved, I would tell you, tragically, even many of these who are flocking to Jesus for healing over earthly struggles, physical, mental, spiritual, they're all seeking relief only in the immediate context of their pain. And they're not really seeing Jesus as Lord, coming to his people with salvation in his hands. Everyone is trying to come to grips with Jesus of Nazareth, and they are all getting it wrong. And to add to the overall irony here in Mark, it would appear at this point that the only ones who clearly see the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is are who? The demons. The demons know who he is and they are rightly afraid. This is the second Adam. The son of God, the stronger man, come to bind the strong man, the devil, and to plunder his house, setting the captives free for eternity. And it is in this very context that we are told that Jesus begins to preach and teach and would have come to be known as parables. And so we have to start with the obvious question, what really is a parable? We've all heard that term parable before, I'm sure. We often hear it referenced in sermons or we read of them in books or we read them in scripture itself and they're almost always referred to with memorable titles, right? Titles like the parable of the sower, which we're going to look at this morning, or the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price. We've all heard these titles, and if you've spent any considerable time at all around the Word of God, you're probably at least somewhat aware of the concepts or the teaching which lies behind each of those names. So what are the parables? Well, That word parable comes from the Greek. It's a word in the Greek that is parabole. It literally means a placing beside. It signifies a placing of one thing beside another thing with a view to comparison. So in the Gospels, we see Jesus using them to teach those who are truly part of his kingdom in the form of a narrative drawn from nature or from some human experience or circumstance, something that the people were going to understand, all with the object of setting forth a much deeper spiritual lesson for those whom it had been granted to understand. They are a window into the things which we cannot hear and now see fully. So Jesus likened things of the kingdom to things that his hearers would be able to grasp. Many of the parables dealt with this concept of the kingdom of God that we've been talking about quite a bit here in Mark. We find a few of them here in Mark chapter 4. In his teaching, Jesus would often take these examples from life or from real life situations and he would draw out these deep spiritual truths. And the truth would become illuminated through the comparison made by Jesus. Eyes were opened to the grand truths and the mysteries of the word of God. It was his way of teaching his church. 
But it was more than that. It was also a way of pronouncing judgment upon those who would hear it and never perceive it. There were some who would hear it and they would have no idea at all what it was that Jesus was trying to say, while others would hear it and they would find themselves rejoicing over finding the treasure that brings them life where they had only known death. And so they begin in Mark's account here at the beginning of this fourth chapter, the very first parable that we will be looking at sort of stands alone in that it explains the very beginnings of the kingdom. It explains the way of the kingdom. It explains the spread of the kingdom, all the while showing Satan's very clear desire to thwart the growth of that kingdom in any way that he's able to do. It's what I would call a foundation parable. Here Jesus not only begins to show us how parables work in his preaching ministry, but he is also in giving us this Very thorough explanation, giving us the key, really, to understanding all of the parables, not just this parable. So it's my desire to investigate these in the coming weeks as we listen to Jesus as he teaches his church about the nature of the kingdom of God and what it is like to live within it. Knowing full well that he who would understand these things can do so only if the Spirit of God has given him eyes, him or her eyes that see and ears that truly hear. These parables are not only a source of wisdom for the people of God, but they are also doing the work of the gospel in separating those who hear them into really one of two camps, the redeemed and the reprobate, or the blessed and the cursed. And so if you've not turned there already, I would invite you to turn with me now to the fourth chapter of Mark and follow along as I read Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Hear now the word of our Lord. And again, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and he sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables, and he said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and it immediately sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, 
And hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes and immediately comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on the stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. Entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful again this morning for the opportunity to come before your word, and we pray this morning that your spirit would fill us. I pray, Father, that you would clear away those things that distract us in this life, and that we would give our full attention to your word this morning, so that hearing it, we may truly hear it, and be transformed by the power of your spirit for the glory of your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As I've already mentioned, it seems to be the perfect starting place in looking at these parables here in Mark's account of the gospel to start with this parable of the kingdom of God dealing with both the origin and the nature of that kingdom. This is how the kingdom begins and it's how the kingdom continues and grows and bears fruit even today. We're still doing this. Jesus has left the house that he had been teaching in and we're told that he's gone down now to the seaside and as he's sitting there, many, many people begin again to crowd in on him as we've seen to hear him teach. And so as the crowd continues to grow, Jesus does what we've seen him do before. He gets into a boat and he goes out a little way into the water and he turns around to face the people and the people are all on the shore facing him listening intently. And the word of God says that he began to teach them many things by parables, saying, listen, a sower went out to sow. Beloved, I want to tell you, we need to pay attention to this listen here. Do you notice there's exclamation here? Jesus is saying, listen, this is important. This is critical if you are to understand the kingdom of God. Jesus has come. His kingdom is with him. A sower went out to sow. Right? We might say a farmer went out to cast his seed. This is the beginning of the teaching on the kingdom. And so Jesus is referring to something here that they're all no doubt familiar with. And he compares the deep, rich truth of the inner workings of the kingdom of God with a farmer or a sower going out into the field to broadcast his seed. 
And you see that he's doing it in a variety of places. Do you notice that? He is indiscriminately casting, broadcasting seed onto all different types of soil. And we need to get this picture in our minds. We need to understand this. The farmer goes out, he throws his seed into the field, and the seed is landing on four different types of ground. So as we get deeper into this parable, I think we could really limit that four down to two types of ground. And we'll come back to that. So let's look at these different types of ground or this different type of soil that we find here. I've often thought this parable is called the parable of the sower. I'm not sure that's a great name. It's really the parable of the soil. Because it's not the sower who's necessarily front and center in this parable. It's the soil. It's the heart of man that is really front and center here that Jesus is trying to get people to understand. There is the ground that is what we call the wayside or the path where the birds of the air can easily swoop down and devour the seed as it sits atop the soil. Next, we see the ground that was stony, which didn't contain much depth of earth. It only appeared to be good on the surface, so the plant would spring up quickly only to be destroyed, scorched by the heat of the sun because of any lack of real root system to sustain it. And then there was the seed that fell among the thorns, which was consequently choked out by those thorns, causing the destruction of any real meaningful plant. And finally, there was the soil that was rich and fertile. The seed that fell on that ground grew significantly and always yielded a crop, sometimes 30, sometimes 60, sometimes 100 fold. And so the disciples are taking this in. They're standing there. They hear Jesus speaking to this crowd, and they're a little bit puzzled. And so when they were able to do so, when they had him alone, they asked him, Why are you speaking to these people in parables? And really, it's a fair question, isn't it? And we're fortunate enough here to have not only the parable of the sower in verses 3 through 8, but we really have the rare explanation of it as well in verses 11 through 20. Verse 9 serves as another reminder of the critical nature of what Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's really no reason for anyone to speculate as to exactly what it is that Jesus is referring to here because when the disciples asked him the question, Why are you speaking in parables? He not only answered the why, but he went on and gave them a detailed explanation of the parable itself. First, though, he answers their question, why? He says in verse 11 and 12, and he said to them, To you, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing, they may see and not perceive. And hearing they may hear and yet not understand, lest they turn and their sins be forgiven them. 
And so I want you to get this scene in your mind. Apparently the disciples here are very concerned for this crowd who are gathered. They're, they're all anticipating this great teacher spreading his wisdom. They're anticipating the teaching of Jesus. And he begins to speak to them in these veiled parables. And the disciples are confused by it. They're saying, Jesus, look at your opportunity here. There's a crowd. Why are you speaking in this veiled way? And Jesus answers them, in essence, saying, I speak this way because it is not for everyone to understand. That's the why. You have been given insight into the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but not all of them have. Therefore, though I am speaking to all of them, The revelation of the mystery of the kingdom is for some of them. To those who have a true knowledge of me, they will hear the word of my teaching and they will deepen in their understanding. But those who hear and who do not belong to the kingdom, they will hear and it will only cast more confusion over their ability to understand it. And so from the beginning, as I mentioned earlier, as we think about these parables, we have to say there is separation going on as Jesus addresses those who are his and he continues to remove those who do not belong. And I want to tell you, beloved, even as you say it, you you, you sense the, the discomfort that we all have with this, right? It's so misunderstood in the church today, and I think the the misunderstanding comes from so many different angles. First, we have those who would teach that this parable is simply some kind of prosperity formula. That if we could just unlock this mysterious code, we could all be on our way to wealth untold, some 30, some 60, or some 100 fold. And of course, we say it's all to the glory of God, right? Even more troubling to me are those who hear this parable and still see the doctrine of election and reprobation as being something that would somehow be beneath God. Something that would disqualify God. Something that would begin to cast shade on God's justice and His goodness. That it would not be fair for God to give some salvation and then not grant it as well to others. And so they search in vain for another way to understand these things. Beloved, I think we see it, and I think we have to see it. Do you see that Jesus is speaking in a way here that increases the understanding of some while at the same time throwing even more doubt and shadow over others who are hearing the exact same message and they're able to walk away with nothing? The kingdom of God includes many, but the word of God says that it speaks to the exclusion of some. And We hear the words of Paul in Romans 9. I've told you before, I, I came into Reformed theology because I really wrestled with Romans 9. Right? When he talks about God raising up Pharaoh to destroy him, where we have that famous uh, line about Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. We have to think about it. And what does Paul answer to that charge in Romans 9? He says, Who are you, O man, to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, 
Why have you made me like this? The truth is, all receive justice, but some receive mercy because of the grace of Almighty God. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to these followers here about the blessing that is there because of his grace. The same blessing that is ours, beloved, if we truly hear it. Blessed are you if you hear the teaching of Jesus Christ and you get it. Because many prophets, many supposedly righteous men desired to see him and to hear him and they did not get to do either. It's a true blessing for those of us who get to see Jesus Christ as he's been revealed to us in the pages of scripture through the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. Then Jesus explains to them this parable. And again, if you ever study the parables, he does not normally do that. The explanation of the sower is implied here to be the one who speaks the word of God. The seed then is the message of the kingdom, or we would say the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the soil is the human heart. And all of us are included in that equation in some way. The emphasis of the parable is on the various kinds of hearts and the way in which they have been prepared by God to either receive or reject the message of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to see it. And so we break it down and we start to think through these soils. The first is what? The wayside or the path. You probably know what a path looks like, right? It is trampled down, it is compacted, it is worn, it is usually barren, it always clearly stands out in the midst of its surroundings. You know, I can remember when I was a child, the quickest route to my best friend's house was this large field that stood behind my family's property and sort of butted up against it. And the owner of that field would wait every day for me and my brothers to try and cut across that field to get to my friend's house. And he would, he would chase us, and he would yell at us. And we could never understand why this guy was so riled up at us for walking through this field. And then one day I grew up. And on the back of my parents' property, we had a pond, and so we had a hill from all the dirt from that pond. We, and I was standing on that hill looking at my parents' property, and I turned around and I looked at the field, and I got it. Because as I looked out over that field from my parents' property, I saw the source of this guy's anger. We had worn a hard, barren path through that field. You understand the ground was hard and it was barren because of so many years of little feet and bicycle tires and three-wheeler tires and motorcycle tires going over the exact same path every single day for my entire childhood. Nothing grew there. It was a path. It was hard, compacted soil, and as such, it had become barren. And that's what the first seed falls on. It falls on a path. 
a wayside. And so the birds of the air can fly. They can see the seed sitting on the hard ground, not penetrating at all into the soil. And so they would just swoop down and devour it. This is the heart that is not penetrated at all by the seed of the gospel. That's the picture. So Satan comes in and he removes the seed of the word before it can penetrate. It's a hard heart. Jesus says these are the ones who hear the word of the kingdom and they just don't get it. And beloved, with all of these hearts, I invite us all this morning to take a moment and to stand back and ask yourself, do you know anyone like this? Perhaps are you yourself like this? Those who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ time and time and time again, and they just write it off as foolishness. The word of God teaches that the message of the cross is indeed foolishness to those who are perishing. Do you relate this morning in any way to the hard heart? If you do, the good news is perhaps that seed is beginning to penetrate. Time will tell. The second soil is probably even more recognizable to us, though. The stony ground is that ground which looks like good ground but really has no real depth. Many of us who've ever had to brandish a shovel in our lives understand this soil of ground, right? It looks like nice, rich, soft earth. And as you bring the shovel down with all of your force, fully expecting to plunge into nothing but soft earth, you feel the vibrations caused when steel clashes against stone and every bone in your hand and your arms begins to ache. Jesus says, these are those who hear the word and immediately receive it with joy, with gladness. Yet he says they have no root in themselves and so they endure for a while. But afterward, when tribulation or persecution arise for the word's sake, immediately they go away. They stumble. And again, I ask you, beloved, do you relate in any way to this heart, this soil, the heart of little depth, the shallow heart? I'm sure, I'm sure we do. If not in ourselves, we recognize it. And others, you know, I still pray for a very dear friend of mine because he was this parable. He was this exact type of soil. He had lived a really rough life, a real rock and roll lifestyle. And when we met, he was near at least his own perception of rock bottom. He had no job. He had no prospects. His daughter and her mother had moved out and left him and he had to find somewhere else to live away from them. He was really in a bad situation, and when he heard the gospel at my house in a Bible study that I taught years ago, he was visibly moved, moved to tears. He was elated, and he joined every single Bible study that he could get into. He became very involved in our church. He spent several weeks even leading our congregation in prayer and the reading of Scripture as part of our worship service. But he began to date a girl that was not in tune with his new beliefs. His friends began to ridicule him. 
He began to get pressure from others telling him that he was making a huge mistake with his life. And as the heat of this life was slowly turned up, he simply went away. He not only stopped coming around my house and the church, he wouldn't even return my phone calls. Right? And there's been others. What about you, beloved? Do you recognize something here? Have you ever been here? Does this one hit a little too close to home for you this morning? What do you do when the heat of this life begins to rise and there's no one from the church looking at you? Ask yourself, do you listen with pleasure when you hear the word of God preached, feeling like you agree with every word, knowing there needs to be changes, you make many good resolutions that vanish as soon as the slightest hint of opposition or temptation or anger begins to arise. I can tell you the church today is full of such hearers of the word of God. Not necessarily our church, I'm saying the church of Jesus Christ. Always hearing. Always hearing, but never so convinced that hearing naturally moves to doing. And to being. Towards loving. Towards that fruit of the Spirit that we like to so often speak of. We see this all over the evangelical landscape. Churches with thousands of people who are there faithfully every single week, enjoying the music, enjoying the friendships, enjoying even the message at times, but their lives are never touched. They're no different now than before they heard the message of this kingdom of God, the gospel. They're able to get excited. Sometimes they're even able to drop what they're doing and serve. But the truth is they do not change. There is no transformation. They flee opposition and simply wait for temptation and they throw all caution to the wind. They have the life that you know and see. And they have the life that they live that is only known by them in Almighty God. And beloved, I want to tell you, anything can set these people back. They lose a job or a loved one. They sense some form of injustice in the way that they're being treated, and it all goes away. Does that one sound familiar? This is what shallow soil looks like. This is a shallow heart. The church is full of shallow hearts in our day, just as it was in the days of Jesus. And the word of God is still being indiscriminately broadcast. And it's still dividing. It's still separating the wheat from the weeds and the sheep from the goats. Then Jesus talks about the thorns as yet another type of ground that we can all relate to, I'm sure. He says in verse 18, now these are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, the word, and he lists those three things. Cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things enter in, and they choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. 
Another who, at least on the surface, seems to enjoy the word when he hears it, but when his gaze leaves the cross of Christ and focuses on all of the shiny things of the world, he begins to find out where his heart really is. And it's always tragic when we see it, right? It always makes me think of the rich young ruler. You remember him, the man who thought that he had the world right where he wanted it. He even thought that he himself was probably blameless in the eyes of the, of the law, but he wanted it confirmed, and so he approaches Jesus. And he wants Jesus to tell him where he stands in light of his great life. So when he encounters Jesus, he says, in effect, Lord, it seems to me that I've done everything a man could do, but I feel like I still lack something. What do I need to do? And Jesus gives him that famous summation of the law. And of course, the man says, oh, yes, yes. I've done all those things from the time of my childhood. And Jesus says, okay. Well, you still lack one thing. Go sell everything that you own. Give it all to the poor and then come and follow me. The man walks away with his head hanging, not because he had to sell everything, but because he found something that he just could not have. And Jesus goes on to tell the disciples how difficult it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom. Tragic. That's what it is when we see it. Because if we know the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus, the cares of the world really should fade. The riches of the world are actually valueless. They are nothing. But when the rich man has his heart exposed, he goes to his grave clinging to his stuff. And it's all worthless. It holds no value, and we see that riches come gradually. They do not choke all at once, but over time they gain that spot in our hearts that is reserved for God and for God alone. Beloved, I pray if that's you this morning, that God will grant you repentance, and that you'll let go of the fading things of this world, and you'll embrace the only thing that actually matters. The only source of peace and joy and comfort and rest in this fleeting, difficult life. Jesus Christ and Him alone. Which leads us, of course, to the good soil. Which Jesus says is the one who not only hears the word, but understands the word by the grace of God and who is consequently transformed by that word. That one goes on to bear fruit for the kingdom of God and not to live for the flesh in this world, sometimes 30, sometimes 60, sometimes even a hundredfold. But all of it to the glory of God as true faith resonates in that one's life, bringing glory to the God who is. So I want us to understand this, right? The the gospel is proclaimed. Conviction for sin is exposed through the perfect law of God as it is manifested. God grants repentance and sorrow for sin and through the power of the Holy Spirit, giving you faith that unites you with the life of Jesus Christ, with his life, his death, his resurrection. It allows you to trust that his righteousness, his perfection are now truly as your own. Is life in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, A sower went out to sow. 
it's like this. You understand, there's really two types of soil. There is the soil that embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ through God-given faith and runs to the arms of Jesus. And there is everything else. Beloved, the question we have to ask this morning is which one of these describes our hearts? And listen, you do not have to spend all of your time guessing which one best describes your general outlook and disposition. Jesus is clear here for a reason. He says, look at your life. Look at your heart. Is there fruit? If not, it's really kind of a waste of time to spend all of your time deciding which one of the three wrong soils you are. The only soil that produces life is the last one. And the beauty of the gospel, beloved, is that God says in that soil, he will cultivate it. There will be fruit in abundance, sometimes more in some than others, but there will always be fruit. And it is the work of almighty God. And he says, if that is you, if that is the soil you desire, come and receive it. That's the beauty of the gospel. God will give you this soil. If you desire it, the fact that you desire it is a work of the Holy Spirit upon your hard heart, your shallow heart, and your thorny heart. Do you understand? God will freely give you his kingdom. He will grant you repentance. And he will cause you to live for his glory. Because he tills the soil. And the soil that is tilled by the very Spirit of God always brings his glory. Will you run to the arms of Jesus? If you do, beloved, your life will bear fruit for the glory of God. You will live for something bigger than yourself. You will die to self, experiencing life in Christ and living for the joy of others. Amen? Let's pray.